Find a fresh take on a fall getaway to Wilmington, North Carolina and beaches. Enjoy hiking trails in a state park, fresh seafood with a sight of live music and fall festivals galore. Then live it up along the Riverwalk in Wilmington's historic downtown. With three island beaches, Carolina, Curie and Wrightsville and a vibrant downtown, you get the best of the Carolina coast all in one place. Plan your fall getaway at WilmingtonandBeachesVacation.com. It's a crime to go against Satan in the USA. Ilhan Omar pledges allegiance to Somalia, shocker, and Joe Biden is finally visiting East Palestine, Ohio. It's the first day of February and it's time for my losers of the week. Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. Did you know you can be charged with a hate crime for defacing a statue? Well, I guess it depends on the statue. If in the name of George Floyd you topple, destroy, deface, or otherwise vandalize statues or historic monuments, you are a martyr for racial justice. But if you destroy a satanic statue, you are charged with a hate crime. Yeah, a Mississippi man has been charged with said hate crime after admittedly destroying a shrine of a satanic idol at the Iowa Capitol in December of last year. Michael Cassidy has not only been charged with third-degree criminal mischief, but is also accused of violating Iowa's hate crime statute. This is the United States of America, and in the United States of America, you're free to worship whatever you want, and that does include Satan, so I understand the free speech and expression implications here. That's not the part that gets me. It's the hypocrisy. Liberals destroy everything, including statues, monuments, historical symbols, sites, and landmarks, and not only do they get away with it, it's celebrated. But if you desecrate Satan, hate crime for you. Uh, another thing you can apparently get away with in the U.S. of A. is filming a gay porn in a Senate hearing room. That, I guess, is just more of that decency Joe brought to the Capitol. But speaking of the worship and allegiance to things that are perhaps inappropriate or morally bankrupt, my next loser this week is none other than Representative Ilhan Omar. Now, in a viral clip of a speech given on January 27th, Ilhan Omar told us exactly what she aims to do as a United States representative. Not represent the USA, not represent Minnesota, but rather... <laughs> Oh, so she is Somali first, then Muslim, good to know. Oh, and she also promises to protect Somali interests while being financed by the American taxpayer. So that sure sounds like treason to me. And I'm with Governor Ron DeSantis on this one. Expel from Congress, denaturalize, and deport. But speaking of treason, my final loser this week is, once again, Joe Biden. 
You know, it took an entire year, but Joe Biden has finally pledged to visit East Palestine, Ohio, the site of the toxic train derailment that is yet he is yet to give a damn about until, well, months before an election. But a reporter asked the question we'd all like to know. And then next month, when the president is in East Palestine, will he drink the water there? I mean, look, what I can tell you is the president's focus has been to do everything that he can to support this community from day one. We get what's going on on the ground. We understand what's going on. That's why we've had the EPA. That's why we had DOT. That's why we had HHS. That's why we've had FEMA on the ground. Um, you know, this is not about some sort of like political stunt here. This is not about, this is not what this is about. So what she meant to say is no, Joe will not be drinking the water, but my money says he'll probably get an ice cream cone. But to be fair, Joe Biden is in no position to be drinking toxic water, given this is how he operates on normal water. We're promoting her posthumously to sergeant. Oh, wow. That is the best news I've heard today. Thank you so much. You don't know how much that means to us. Oh, well, I tell you what, it means a lot to, a lot to me. Uh, my son studied here in Iraq. That's how I lost him. And, uh... Again... Bo Biden died of brain cancer, not in Iraq. But those are my losers of the week. But the losing continues when it comes to our tax dollars anyway. It's time once again to open the books. Did you know the American taxpayer tab for refugee care sits at $20 billion? The cost of taxpayers also rose almost $2 billion from 2022 to 2023. And with more illegals pouring in each and every day, well, get out your pocketbooks. Joining me now with more is Open the Book CEO and founder, Adam Angievsky. Adam, always love our segments where we open the books, although it is cringeworthy and it gives me a little bit of heartburn. I still think it's important that we discuss it. You've always got new ones that Open the Books is reporting, and obviously I came across one of your latest investigations into how much we are spending on so-called refugees. Um, the refugee numbers are growing probably by the minute, what can you tell us about what we're spending and what it's actually for? So last year in 2023, there was a record crush at our borders of 2.5 million and 2.5 million migrant encounters. And Tommy, it's only getting worse. Just six days ago, Border Patrol reported stunning numbers, the worst ever, up 50% in a month, up to 302,000 encounters just in the last month. That's up 50%. So look, if that pace continues, you're looking at 3.6 million encounters uh, at our at our nation's borders. And look, Mexico is the number one country, about one out of every three of the encounters. Their nation of origin is Mexico. But then you've got a lot of countries from Central America and South America and the Caribbean. So you've got Venezuela, Guatemala, Honduras, Colombia, even Cuba uh, with the crush of migrants on our borders. Yeah, I mean, really, pretty much every country in the world has been represented as far as coming across our, our southern border. A lot, you know, a lot of numbers uh, also on the terror watch list, uh, very high numbers that should be concerning to all Americans. But beyond just the national security implications, we got to get down to the brass tacks of the money. What, what this is costing us, we know that this is going to suck us dry. We know that there are several cities across the United States that are already underwater when it comes to having to resettle these so-called refugees. But this money that the taxpayers are spending on these illegal immigrants, refugees, migrants, whatever you want to call them, where is that money really going or do we even really know?
So remember when in 2016, when Trump was running for president and the top line estimates on a robust and substantial border wall, those estimates topped out at $15 billion and the left went crazy. They said, we don't have the money. That's too much money. Well, at OpenTheBooks.com, our auditors just quantified the cost of migrant aid over the course of the last two years, and it's north of $20 billion out of a sub-agency of Health and Human Services. It's called the Office of Refugee Resettlement. Just in the past two years, $20 billion at taxpayer cost. So this all-time surge in migrant encounters at the border has led to an all-time surge in taxpayer cost. Uh, Joe Biden is the first president that will probably run up to about $50 billion worth of migrant aid in his four years. So that Trump border wall, uh, that was peanuts by comparison. And when you build a wall to protect your nation, that's something that is longstanding, something that you build as an investment. But these illegals, migrants, refugees, whatever they are, asylum seekers, dreamers, whatever, coming over, it's not just a one-time payment. We're pretty much taking care of these people in perpetuity. And we also have the unaccompanied minors that we're really taking care of in perpetuity, whether it be actually getting them where they need to go, paying for their meals, paying for their housing, paying for their education, paying for the stresses on our infrastructure, paying for immigration judges and court processes. I mean, we talk about these kids that are coming over unaccompanied, a lot of them obviously under the age of 18. I can only imagine what the bill for that's going to be over the next few years. What can you tell uh, us? Tommy, I'm glad you're talking about it. At OpenTheBooks.com, between 2013 and 2022, we quantified $13 billion worth of U.S. taxpayer assistance for the unaccompanied minors. But the numbers are up sharply and substantially. And there's actually a child trafficking crisis unfolding, which our this Office of Refugee Resettlement is an unwitting partner in this child trafficking scheme with the cartels. There's been 260,000 of these unaccompanied minors. These are kids under 18 years of age that are encountered on the border without a parent, without a guardian. Uh, 85,000 of them have been, quote unquote, lost within the system after this agency sponsors them out. They don't know where they're at. They really don't know who they're with anymore, and they can't get in touch with the sponsors of 85,000 of these unaccompanied minors. Yeah, you know, it really is um, aiding and abetting the, the, the sex trade, the human trafficking trade. And beyond that, too, I want to talk about the Office of Refugee Resettlement, but even beyond them, let's talk about some of these NGOs, these non-governmental organizations that are getting money from the federal government to resettle these people or to take them certain places and how these grants are allocated. I'm sure there's a lot of fraud, waste, and discrepancies when it comes to that as well. Maybe some conflicts of interest as well. What can you tell us about these, uh, these organizations that we are funding so graciously and charitably? So they're, they're the uh, frontline organizations that hand out the suite of benefits, which are very lucrative. You've got a crush at the border because we're handing out taxpayer money with very lucrative perquisites and perks for, for folks. So, you know, you know, these agencies actually are in charge of emergency housing assistance, work benefit, work, work applications uh, for jobs. They offer uh, mental health screening cultural orientation, 
They'll help you build your credit, buy your first home. They'll give you micro grants to start your business. The list goes on and on. The public benefits application, which is the whole suite of the public aid benefits. Uh, so it's very, it's too lucrative right now. And that's why you've got caravans of hundreds of thousands of people a month crushing our border. And the numbers are also staggering, even beyond just what's happened in the last couple of years. And we talk about just the illegal immigrants that have been living in the shadows in this country for years and years, if not decades and decades. A lot of those illegal immigrants are also receiving assistance, still receiving assistance, and they're doing that for their from their American-born anchor babies. So you've got anchor babies born in the U.S., and then these parents and, and others are able to feed off of them and get uh, benefits and entitlements and welfare programs for really in, in perpetuity. And I'm sure that that with the probably 20 to 30 million illegals we have in this country, I can't even begin to imagine how you'd audit a cost like that. So you're always asking the question, has the agency itself, in this case, the sub-agency of Health and Human Services, and it's called the Office of Refugee Resettlement, have they been captured by those non-governmental organizations, those charities that are doling out the benefits and the grants? And so here's the situation at the Office of Refugee Resettlement. The current director, Robin Dunn Marcos, actually comes out of two of the top five grant receiver organizations. So you've got International Rescue Committee, their grants just last year, when she was the director, were up $100 million year over year. Now she was a, an employee there for 23 years. She was in an executive capacity for the last four years before she joined the organ before she joined leadership at the Office of Refugee Resettlement, who hands out the grants. Now the agency says she follows the ethics rules. She recuses herself from any conversations with the International Rescue Rescue Committee. But Tommy, here's the deal. At OpenTheBooks.com, we always say, says who with what proof? We filed a Federal Freedom of Information Act request for her emails. That was nine months ago, and they refused to turn them over. So what do you think you would find in those emails that we might be a little concerned about? Well, any, any uh, thumb on the scale in terms of her former two employers, World Church Services, or the International Rescue Committee. And like I said, they're scooping up hundreds of millions of dollars worth of grant making from the very agency she now heads up. So we need congressional action on this. I think congressional investigators need to dig in. Yeah, it really is concerning. You know, the average person out there, when they hear about these philanthropic organizations, these even sometimes religious-based, as you mentioned, church-based organizations that are supposed to be helping these illegal aliens out, you know, they're not always doing it out of the goodness of their heart. In a lot of cases, they're doing it because they're making a whole lot of money doing it. So they have a dog in this fight as well. They don't want to end the crisis at our southern border. They don't want to end the invasion because then the money would dry up if you don't have people that you can get grant dollars for. So it feels like there's a lot of people in cahoots here to keep this up, whether it's because they want to give these people voting rights or they just want to have the money keep flowing through. I just can't imagine if we don't get this solved, how does the United States of America not go bankrupt with this? Well, Tommy, you're spot on. So the executive that runs the International Rescue Committee makes a million dollars a year. Uh, Church World Services, they actually advocated on Twitter for the abolishment of ICE. So... <laughs> 
Uh, and look, Robin Dunn Marcos, the director of of the agency that comes out of those two organizations, she makes a lot of money as the as the director of this sub agency of Health and Human Services. As a matter of fact, she out earns every single member of Congress except the House Speaker. She makes one hundred and eighty thousand a year and a rank and file U.S. Senator and member representative in the U.S. House. They make one hundred and seventy four thousand a year. So all these people, you know, you start out in this world to do good and you end up doing very well. Yeah. Well, you know, I also think that our members of Congress are grossly overpaid uh, in, in addition to that. So maybe there's some work that could be done there. Maybe they would be willing to hemorrhage part of their salaries to the illegal immigrants that they are dead set on allowing into our country. You know, every time I talk to you, we get a lot of great information the American people need to know. It's still unsettling, but we got to have the facts and we got to have the figures. So thank you. And thank you to open the books for everything that you guys do and keeping us on top of all this. It's painful to hear, but we got to hear it. it's the cold, hard truth. Thank you, as always, and I encourage everybody to go to open the books and make sure they're up to date on all the investigations you guys do and all your fantastic work. Thank you, as always. Thank you, Tommy. We'll talk to you soon. All right, moving on now to one of the most difficult decisions every young woman must make. To be or not to be a gold digger. My next guest used to be a self-proclaimed raging feminist, but she has left that behind in pursuit of a new role as an S-A-H. G, a stay-at-home girlfriend. Mia Chai's lifestyle might seem lavish, but it comes with some rules. She cannot get fat. She has to stay under 130 pounds. She has to cook her boyfriend every meal, spend a maximum of $20,000 on luxury shopping per month, and dress modestly. She says she'd rather be dripping in diamonds than women's rights, and she joins me now. I've been awaiting this discussion, Nia, and I want to just jump right into it. You used to be a feminist. You used to call yourself a raging feminist, even, and then you discovered that might uh, life might be a little bit better as a stay-at-home girlfriend. Tell me what that lifestyle entails for inquiring minds and why you chose it over being a raging feminist. Absolutely. So I used to be a bleeding heart liberal. And you know, what's funny is I hated you in high school and college. <laughs> I thought you were the worst. Well, and, join the club. <laughs> um, I, I went to an all Christian school. So maybe it was just rebellion, right? And then it started with the fact that I was being ostracized by my fellow feminists. And um, it was it started with just jokes, you know, I'd say, oh, I'd love to be a trophy wife. Oh, I hate working. And they'd look at me and be like, ew, you don't want to be a career woman? How could you be a feminist? If you love men and we hate men because we're misandrous, how could we like you? That's feminist math right there. So um, I didn't mean to be a stay-at-home girlfriend. I just met my boyfriend and it blossomed from there. Right. Well, you're still obviously very young. So being a stay-at-home girlfriend, I mean, reading about it, you kind of qualify that as a job of sorts. We know that, you know, stay-at-home motherhood, that's been somewhat of a job for pretty much the beginning of time. But being Definitely. a stay-at-home girlfriend, how is that different than being a stay-at-home mom besides the fact that you don't have kids? Oh, and every, it's different in every way. I mean, stay-at-home moms have a, a job that's a million times harder than mine. But obviously, that is my ultimate goal is to have four kids and live on a farm and make sourdough bread every day, you know? <laughs> but stay-at-home girlfriend is kind of the leading up to it. Uh, my boyfriend would not have me struggle, per se, until I'm a housewife. He wants to start the lifestyle exactly where we are. He's setting the standard. 
So I have to ask you, though, I mean, this is still your boyfriend, not yet your fiancé or husband. So do you have some concerns that you're going to spend time with this man who is, you know, obviously supporting you now? But what if things go south? What if they go awry? What's the backup plan or do you have one? That's a really good point and something that I think is really important for young women to remember when they're watching my videos. It goes with any career. You need to do your research before you take any life decision. So I'm definitely not telling young women that they should just jump ship, quit their jobs and be with a man. I have some comments that are like, I quit my job. I'm going to go find a rich man. I'm like, it doesn't really work like that for me. I was a career woman, which people laugh at. They're like, you, you're 22. You weren't a career woman for long. But uh, I got my master's degree and I was very well off and comfortable in my uh, career before I met him. And then all of the allowance that he gives me, it's in my own separate bank account. Since I don't spend any money, I have a very nice uh, savings account to fall back on. So it's the least of my worries of uh, if I'll be homeless mm. after we break up. <laughs> we are... You know, you're a content creator, and there's a lot of folks out there that consider content creation to be a job. So I don't necessarily, you know, disagree with that notion that you actually do have a job of sorts because you're putting content out there and you can monetize that content. But, you know, I'm also wondering, you said that you obviously well-educated, you had a job, you're doing well at that job. Is there a part of you that when you're at home cooking or cleaning or whatever it is that you do to fill your days beyond shopping, are there ever days where you're like, damn, I, I wish I had my job. I wish I could go out there and use my degree. Do you ever get bored? I love that question because when you have all the free time in the world, you can do absolutely anything you want. So really, there's nothing stopping me from doing something else if I wanted to get a job or start a career. Like I, uh, I've said before, one of my biggest goals is to start a nonprofit. I have a soft spot for the homeless, like the Skid Row specifically. And you could do anything. You don't have to sit at home if you don't want to. He's not tying me here, you know? Right. So you have to tell me about this arrangement. Was it your idea or was it your boyfriend's idea? Did he say, listen, I don't want you to work. I want you to stay home. I want to give you an allowance and have you live the good life. Or was that something that maybe you suggested? No, it was 100% him. And I, I wasn't even aware that this lifestyle existed before I met him either. But how do you say no to that? Right. Well, there um, there used to be a show on E! called The Girls Next Door, and I think they kind of pioneered the lifestyle that you're living as far as being with somebody that has money and being able to do whatever they want all day long. So obviously the, the Playboy lifestyle has been around for, for a long time, and of course the stay-at-home mom lifestyle, as we said, has been around really since the beginning of time. But I also wonder, do you worry at all about the power dynamic as far as your boyfriend making the money, giving you an allowance? Is there ever any point, and I'm sure you love him, I'm sure he's a great guy, but is there ever a point where you get frustrated or you feel like you don't have your independence or you feel like maybe it's a, a condescending situation that you've put yourself in? Biologically, men are alpha males and, and women are more feminine. I think it's in their biology to lead. That being said, if you feel like you are with a man who is controlling and is abusing you in any way, get out of that situation. I would never choose a man, even if he's taking care of everything the way that mine is. I would never at the end of the day, stay with a man who had a power dynamic over me that was terrorizing or abusing mm -hmm. me. 
Do you ever worry that because of the power dynamic and because of the lifestyle, obviously you're a beautiful young woman, sure you have nothing to worry about, but are you ever worried that your boyfriend's going to see something else running down the street and that he's going to make this girl a stay-at-home girlfriend or a stay-at-home wife? Does that ever cross your mind? I mean, it's got to. Anything could happen, just like I could re- leave him for, you know, a richer man, right? <laughs> Anything could happen. I'm not naive to say that our relationship will last forever. I mean, relationships end every day. Most relationships end. Most marriages end. So who am I to say, oh, my God, we're going to stay together forever, you know? Well, you're smart in that you have that bank account and you're piling up the money and earning interest on that bank account that you're getting. So, you know, I respect the hustle. I want to talk about some of the rules, though, you know, that I mentioned in the opening there. You can't you can't get fat um, and you have to cook meals. So tell me about the getting fat part. Um, Do you have to weigh yourself on a daily or weekly basis or is that just kind of a, a rough guideline? No, that's completely satire. As funny as I think it is, uh, we met when we met. I was I think I was a little bit bigger than that. He really doesn't care about those types of things. We don't care about weight (laughs) cooking. However, I love cooking. He does not require me to every single day, though. I think we ordered out the last two days, actually. But I do enjoy cooking. And I think acts of service is really important to offer to your partner. So I totally enjoy that. And I do think as far as the fat goes, that there is a little bit of truth to that. You should still care about how you look and how you present yourself to your to your partner. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's just in general for relationships, that's an important part of it as well. You know, you said you used to be a feminist, uh, you used to be a liberal, you used to hate me. I'm sure for many different reasons, your your feminist friends probably didn't like me for you know a variety of reasons. But I will say this, what I find interesting, and I talk about this on my show all the time, is how feminism has changed from its origins. Because you mentioned that some of your feminist or liberal friends, they just simply hated men. Um, but then they also call themselves feminists, but they hated me, somebody who was a successful young female. So did you ever point that out to them as you were leaving kind of the confines of what they described as feminism? Well, I pointed it out to them as far as my own personal experience, because you're hating on me because my lifestyle depends on a man or just because I simply love being in a relationship. Admitting that is apparently anti-feminist. And then after a while, I just decided I agree with the basic idea of feminism. Okay. But this radical feminism where I am not allowed to have that choice anymore and that I am ostracized if I'm not a career woman, I can't identify with a community like that anymore. Right. Well, feminism and and liberalism, at least American liberalism, they go hand in hand. So I'm wondering, do you still have friends that consider themselves feminists or worse than that, liberals? Most of them, I used to live in Florida, which is a super, you know, red state, and I moved out west, which is super liberal, and most of my friends are extremely liberal. So, yeah. So, I'm wondering if you guys have any discussions as far as feminism goes, talking about one of the current issues that we have going on as a society, and that's men, biological men, competing against women in women's sports. You've got to tell me how your West Coast liberal feminist friends, how they justify that one to you. I'm not sure I have uh, asked them about it. I think I'm too scared to. Some of those deep issues are best left at the surface if I want to stay friends. But I did actually, I watched one of your videos before I came on just to refresh myself on your politics. And uh, no comment. (laughs) 
Gotcha. Uh, so I, I have to ask you, you said you used to consider yourself a feminist and a liberal. We've got an election coming up. Um, is there anybody that you're eyeing? Are you a Joe Biden fan or maybe a Donald Trump fan somewhere in the middle? What are your thoughts on that? I have to know. My politics changed really quickly. I voted for Biden in 2020 and I will be voting for Trump in 2020. Well, hey, listen, it sounds like you're learning a lot and I can't knock the lifestyle. I can't knock the hustle. I really appreciate you coming on and sharing it and, and you know, having obviously such a good humor about it. I really appreciate it. And I'm glad that you don't hate me anymore. That's always a win. And uh, I'm glad to hear that your, your politics have changed and you got a good head on your shoulders. So keep doing you. God bless you. And thanks for taking the time. God bless you. Thank you for having me. Thanks so much. All right, folks, that does it for us from Nashville. God bless and take care.